0: Okay, welcome to the podcast. Two things I want to cover today are the retirement advice review and pension transfers. Uh, But first, some some news items I wanted to touch on. In case anyone hasn't been paying attention, it looks like things are about to kick off in the pensions policy space. The summer recess is coming. And that means it's time for hard-working civil servants to clear their desks before heading off for a short but well-earned two months sunning themselves on the polluted sands of this increasingly overcrowded island we like to call home. Actually, on which point, I would draw your attention to the excellent work of demographer Stephen J. Shaw, writer of Birth Gap, Childless World, who makes the point it isn't overpopulation we need to worry about, despite appearances to the contrary just now. In fact, contrary to the apocalyptic fears of climate catastrophists, it is the declining birth rate coupled with increasing longevity, which will lead first to an ageing population, followed by uh, an abruptly shrinking population, um, with the only region of the world bucking this trend being sub-Saharan Africa. And good luck to them. So all of this will have profound implications in due course for healthcare, taxation, pensions, house prices and the sale of adult nappies. But I digress. Look, the point is, it is traditional for the aforementioned civil servants to shovel out a load of consultation papers ahead of their break, thus affording themselves the added joy while sipping their margaritas of knowing that we'll all be hard at work while they aren't. So, from the DWP, we're expecting to see papers on small pots consolidation, on value for money in occupational pensions, collective defined contribution schemes, that's multi-employer CDC, decumulation from occupational DC schemes and perhaps something on illiquid investments too. We're also expecting to get the draft legislation for the abolition of the lifetime allowance, which is good news. And meanwhile, it looks increasingly likely the Chancellor is going to drop an announcement on illiquid investments for pension schemes. And tied into all of this, is going to be something explosive on scheme consolidation, so the rumours go. I refer you to the Tony Blair Institute paper on the same subject. Worth a read. Though do also read Craig Berry's uh, excellent blog posts on the subject. I'll put links to both of those in the show notes in case anyone fancies doing a bit of homework ahead of the Chancellor's announcement. Our friends over at the PLSA are fighting a bit of rearguard action on all this, arguing there are plenty of solutions that don't involve mass redundancies across the pensions industry, but I don't think anyone's listening. The Overton window seems to be firmly centred on aggressive consolidation, with Jeremy Hunt and Rachel Reeves vying to outbid each other. If the rumours are to be believed, and some at least seem to have credible provenance, we are in for a busy summer. Right, that's enough of news headlines, which will obviously all go out of date very quickly, so if you're reading this a few weeks from now, listening to this a few weeks from now, I apologise. Skip over this bit. Don't listen to the first bit. Come in now. I want to talk a bit about the FCA's Retirement Advice Review, which has dropped through the letterboxes of financial advisors in recent weeks. It's big. 61 pages. 86 questions, many with detailed data points involved. Though some are, to be fair, simple yes-no questions. Sending this out only a few weeks ahead of consumer duty with a tight deadline is evidence someone at the FCA has a sense of humour. So I just want to run through the highlights because I think if you haven't been filling this questionnaire in yourself, you might be quite interested to know what's in it. Uh, I think it has some interesting pointers for the direction of policy thinking from the SCA. So they open some softballs, just, just to get the batsmen warmed up, with some, some questions around lifetime lending, equity release. Uh, they don't ask many questions around that, but I think they are potentially quite significant. They ask whether... Lifetime lending is considered separately from traditional decumulation products and services, or do advisors cover them all in one go? And I think that's important because at the moment there is a bit of a silo problem with equity release where wealth managers don't really like to talk about equity release, which as we established at their recent conference is, you know, equity release is the Belgians of the financial services industry. And typically, mortgage advisors, later life lending advisors, don't really do wealth management. And I think this siloing is a bit of a problem. So I think it's interesting that the FCA is asking questions around that. They ask questions about target markets and how they're reviewed, whether minimum client values are applied, and whether incentives for potential clients are offered, things like cashbacks. They also ask questions about non-target markets. are there minimum values you'll Tolerators and an advisor? Do you deal with inexperienced investors? They ask about how vulnerable customers are identified both initially and on an ongoing basis and decumulation. And I think that's kind of interesting because some recent consumer duty output from the FCA showed that quite a lot of financial advisors apparently are just not too worried about vulnerable customers. And I would tentatively suggest they probably should be because, as is pointed out, anyone can become vulnerable at any time. And if you don't have policies in place as an advisor to deal with that, you're probably going to get pulled up by the FCA on it. They ask for minimum, mean, and maximum fund values for decumulation business, and the same for advice fees, both upfront and ongoing service charges. They task for total firm revenue on decumulation. They ask for turnover on both a transactional and a holistic and an automated advice basis they ask for frequency of reviews and what gets included in the reviews. And all this sort of stuff, I think, is the kind of questioning that's leading them towards forming some kind of regulatory view on what good looks like in all this kind of space. Maybe I'm being optimistic. On platforms, they ask for total assets under administration arising from decumulation, whether you've got your own platform. How many platforms are available for your advisors to choose from for decumulation? Total assets across top three platforms. Have platforms been chosen specifically to meet the needs of decumulation customers, and what are the reasons for choosing them? Things like cost, service, functionality, research tools, financial strength, (laughs) advisor remuneration. I think that might be a trick question. They ask of frequency of platform reviews and when did you last change your platforms and why you changed platforms last time around. They ask about tools and services used to help deliver decumulation advice, whether you use or offer hybrid or automated advice services and what areas of automation are outsourced. They ask what decumulation solutions you use and ask for product splits across different customer value sizes. They ask about consolidation activity what investment portfolios you have specifically for decumulation clients, how many customers have used an investment pathway, use of high-risk investments, frequency of drawdown rebalancing, and how this is carried out. Data on periodic reviews in drawdown, what percentage purchased uh, an annuity following a suitability review. I think that's quite an interesting one. You know, how often do you flip customers from drawdown into annuities? And also, and I think this is an interesting area, customers who have depleted their drawdown to the point where income couldn't be paid. Customers who have had income cut due to unsustainability. I think that's a real issue with non-advised customers, but I think it's interesting they're starting with advised customers. They also ask, do you have a standard withdrawal rate percentage for sustainable income? And if so, how often is it reviewed? And if you don't have a standard for what constitutes a sustainable income withdrawal rate, how do you calculate customer income withdrawal rates? How do you ensure adequate liquidity? Do you use bucketing or cash, fixed income, income funds, DFMs? And if cash, how many months do you hold? How often do you review your customer's income withdrawal strategies? And do you have a standard for how much secure income a customer should have? And if not, why not? They ask loads of questions about fact-finding, how you go about it, do you do it face-to-face, use a planner? frequency of updating your fact-find when giving subsequent advice, and how you assess customers' attitude to risk. Do you use software, questionnaires, psychometric testing? How is risk profiling done? Is it in-house? Do you use third parties? How often do you review it? Is there a separate process for calculating capacity for loss? And what processes and tools do you use for cash flow modelling? What assumptions do you take account of? Health, tax, inflation, growth rates, charges, inheritances, and so on. They ask about staff qualifications, CPD... What bonuses do you pay to your staff? And I like this what criteria have you used for SESS advisor bonuses, including assets under administration, sales, but also persistency, complaints, customer outcomes, advisor conduct, and so on? Again, definitely a nod in a consumer duty kind of direction there. And they ask about supervision and quality assurance and things like file checking. So, like with all this stuff, I guess my fairly predictable observation would be that if you as an advisor business don't have good answers to all these kind of questions, now might be a good moment to think about them. And given where consumer duty is taking us, I don't think product manufacturers are off the hook either. But look, what we haven't seen, and what I think we really should see, is some thorough qualitative research on non-advised consumer decision-making at the point of decumulation, subsequently, because lots of people, they might take some pension-wise guidance. Only a small percentage of people are actually taking regulated financial advice and a lot of people aren't taking either. No one seems to have really dug into this even eight years after Pension Freedom. For all the people who aren't being told what to do by a financial advisor, what decision-making processes are they going through? How are they making a decision about what products to buy? how to review them, what income withdrawal rates to pursue, because, as I never tire of pointing out, for all drawdown pot sizes up to a quarter of a million pounds, the commonest income withdrawal rate is over 8% a year. And that doesn't look sustainable to me. So how are people making those decisions? I think it's appalling that eight years after pension freedom, there doesn't appear to have been any research into what's actually going on in consumers' minds through all of this what problems might be backing up further down the line as people run down their pots of money. And that doesn't typically come from people who've taken financial advice. It's the non-advised customers who are the problem here. So, anyway, I don't know how how long the FCA is going to take to review all the returns they're getting from financial advisors from these questionnaires. But in the meantime, what with all this going on in consumer duty, it does seem like a good moment for advisory businesses just to make sure... All their compliance processes are fully match fit. And if you're a manufacturer, you might be thinking about what kind of communications you're sending out to your customers as well. Okay, that's that. I want to talk a bit about pension transfers. Because a few days ago, we had the DWP's review of the pension transfer regulations, which were first published in 2021. Now, look, we've got two problems here pulling in opposite directions. And I'm not sure how well we're dealing with either of them. On the one hand, we have pension scams in all their manifold unpleasantness, and on the other, the need to deliver good customer service and generally to execute client instructions in a timely and efficient manner. And there is a tension between the two. So the starting point on these transfer regs was a consultation back in 2016, which led to three kind of headline policies. There was a ban on pensions cold calling, There was a limit on the statutory right to transfer to some occupational pension schemes and making it harder for fraudsters to open up pension schemes. And I think with the first and last ones, the ban on cold corning and making it harder for fraudsters to set up pension schemes, everyone was pretty on board with it all. It was the right to transfer that proved more problematic and that ended up with the the red and amber flags, which were a product of the legislative process that went through as as the time the regs were being drawn up. And the red flags are circumstances where the pensions industry believe there is a significant risk of a scam. For example, unsolicited contact to persuade someone to transfer. Whilst amber flags are where the pensions industry believes there may be a risk, but equally the circumstances could be legitimate. For example, fees being charged by the receiving scheme are high, unclear or high. And these were deliberately put into secondary legislation to make them more amendable as time went on. So anyway, look, the DWP committee, led by the estimable Stephen Timms, called for a review and so it has come to pass. And the review was based on three principles. Are the regulations effective? Are there any unintended consequences of this legislation? And what does the pension fraud landscape look like following the new legislation? And as such, are the red and amber flags still appropriate? So. The data from the DWP would leave you to believe that the vast majority of transfers complete satisfactorily. For example, they say a transfer is complete when it either has gone ahead or isn't going to go ahead, which seems to me a curious definition of a complete pension transfer and will probably cause the heads to explode around some of the pension consolidator providers. The data says hardly any red flags were used. However, when you look at the qualitative feedback, they do say, and I quote here, the DWP received additional feedback during the quarterly forums with providers and in the data returns. Overall, pensions industry feedback suggests that the original policy intent of preventing or minimising the risk of someone transferring into a scam pension scheme remains appropriate. Well, great. And in general, the regulations are the way to deliver that. Also, great. Feedback also suggests that there has not been a change in scam typology. However, some feedback has suggested that there are some areas of concern. This included the overseas investment amber flag needs to be more clearly defined or removed. And I've certainly heard of cases of people wanting to transfer into a pension that offers a very standard pooled international equity fund and that getting an amber flag because there's an overseas investment involved. I go on. As it is structured, it can mean that an amber flag needs to be raised, even when schemes have no concerns. The incentives flag is incorrectly blocking transfers due to the different interpretation of the flag by some providers. Transfers are taking longer due to the additional due diligence, checks required, and longer waiting times for money help or appointments. Several individuals are required to attend multiple safeguarding appointments, even if they are consolidating, because individual schemes are identifying flags and evidence requirements for an employment link can be excessive on pension members. The DWP considered the potential detriment to the member incurred from a delay in their pension transfer as acceptable if it prevents them making an irreversible decision of losing their life savings from a scam or unsuitable high-risk investment product. And I don't think any of us would disagree. These are laudable aims. However, we take things too far, or we certainly can do anyway. Preventing all road deaths by introducing a four miles per hour speed limit would be effective but disproportionate. (laughs) What we seem to have here is a set of regulations that achieves one aim of preventing scams at the expense of another also very important objective of keeping the wheels of the pensions industry turning at an acceptable pace. And here I want to compare and contrast the feedback I've had from two different sources, both of whom I trust, One works for a small pension consolidator, so kind of on one side of the equation, and the other a large, well-established provider with a big book of existing customers, so perhaps on the other side of the equation. Now, that incumbent scheme would argue they have a duty to protect customers, not just from fraud, but also from making ill-judged or ill-informed decisions. And clearly many customers are seduced by cute marketing, a honey trap, so to speak and haven't considered things like charge-capped default funds, trustee oversight, suitability of investment choices, and so on. Undoubtedly, this is a legitimate concern. Indeed, there is evidence to that effect. Equally, in some cases, customers are making informed decisions and are being balked by providers who are throwing logs on the tracks. And this is what I hear from the pension consolidators. Transfers to occupational pension schemes are covered under Condition 1, defined in the regulations in 2021. It's the transfers to contract-based pensions covered under Condition 2 that seem to be causing the problems. They do require providers to interrogate customers to ascertain whether a red or amber flag might apply. In the vast majority of cases, there is no flag. Often, even if there is an amber flag, it doesn't mean it's a scam. But this process of checking is so slow and bureaucratic In a lot of cases, the customer just gives up, which, by the way, apparently the DWP defines as a complete transfer. There is no central safe list of providers that would allow a seeding scheme to quickly and easily check that the receiving scheme X is indeed a legitimate and appropriate provider for someone to be transferring to, because no one is willing to take responsibility for it in case they get it wrong. So all providers maintain an unofficial internal safe list. They just aren't at all helpful about how they use or apply it. In many cases, it appears they are deliberately making the process of checking with the customer slow enough to cause the transfers to fail. So our friends over at Star, which was set up as a a not-for-profit cross-industry initiative initially, to try and standardise and speed up the transfer process, and still does excellent work in that space, they've created a system to track and monitor the performance of providers dealing with transfers, which Orego also kind of does, but Star goes into more detail, goes deeper looking at the stages of transfers, examining the performance of the different counterparties involved, and provides accreditation of firms that have agreed to sign up to specific SLAs. So all that seems to me like a really good thing. The bit that seems to be missing is some kind of standardized process for consumers to go through. At present, the list of questions sent to them by providers or the forcing them into a phone call it can be pretty brutal. I saw one example where a provider sends 38 questions out to a customer to answer before they'll allow that customer to move their own money to a different provider. And it, you know, these are not simple questions either. This is the kind of stuff that will cause people just to throw their hands in the air and walk away. So I think there should be some kind of simple comparison process and providers have got to get better at recognizing competitors who are legitimate market participants. If a provider is worried a customer just hasn't properly checked the product charges investment choices and so on they've been marketed into and a legitimate product could be legitimate just not a very good one There should be a standardised checklist every customer should be pointed to so everyone can be reassured that Mrs Miggins has asked the right questions before launching into a transfer. And could it be done simply and quickly? Years ago, along with some fellow conspirators, we managed to force retirement wake-up packs down from dozens of pages to a simple one-page pension passport wake-up pack – And that effectively was the precursor to the pension freedoms and was subsequently adopted by the FCA as policy in, I think, about 2017, 2018. It seems something similar is needed here. Between PSIG and PASA, STAR, not to mention TISA, the ABI and the PLSA, it shouldn't be this hard to prevent scams and also avoid making a misery of the lives of ordinary customers who are just trying to exercise some control and involvement over their retirement savings. And actually, perhaps part of the problem is the old people's front of Judea problem. That there's just too many voices involved here. But whatever the reason, it's clearly not working very well at the moment. It sort of works, but also is at the same time a bit of a sort of clusterfubar. Mind you, if the whole pension provision consolidation juggernaut really does leave the station in a short period of time, this could all be moot anyway. I'm going to leave it there. Thanks for listening. As always, do please leave comments. Rude if you want to, but preferably constructive. Like, subscribe, tell your friends. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. If you did, then do please consider leaving a positive review and maybe even subscribing for future episodes. The sound engineer was Ross Burns. Thank you for listening.